Hello, everybody. I'm Pam Montgomery, um, the Vision Council for Organization of Nature Evolutionaries. Thank you all for joining us this afternoon. And today, uh, I'm excited to have a fellow Vermonter here uh, joining us today. And she, her name is Nadine Cantor Barnicle, and she is a professor at Middlebury College in Vermont. And she works with community. She's a community engagement specialist. And I'm like, hmm, I can't wait to see that is. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and um, just to say that Nadine has done a lot of work with focusing on strategic coalition building in the areas of land use and transportation, air quality, conservation, and climate change. And she also has worked with um, focuses on the hope that humans can learn from, quotes, our kin in the forests, in the estuary, and on the plains, that if we stop, listen, and open our hearts, we can reimagine our way to a life of reciprocity and mutuality, and all beings can flourish. And I'm like, yeah, I'm on with you on that one. So anyway, I'm just so excited to... Um, to have Nadine with us, and we're talking about relationship with nature, unlearning, and learning at the intersection of theory and practice. So we're going to go into this. We're going to discuss this, and we're going to deepen into this relationship with nature by approaching it, looking at sustainability um, from straight from the roots through unlearning to relearn. So Nadine, thank you so much for being with us. I'm so excited to have you here and I can't wait to hear um, what you have to share with us because I think it's pretty exciting and it's, you know, it's kind of like a little, you know, it's, it's, you're with us on this totally in this working with nature consciousness and all that. And yet you've got quite a unique perspective. And so I'm really looking forward to, to what you have to share with us. So tell us, tell us how you came to all this and how you got to this. And um, I, I know you also work with this lovely uh, perennial project. And I'd love to hear what you have to say about that too. So Nadine, take yeah. it away. Thanks, Pam. Um, thanks so much for hosting me. It's, it's an honor to be here. And your mission just aligns so well with the work that I'm doing in education and the work I've been doing for a long time. So I, and I'm in awe of what you've created, you know, as the founder of O-N-E. It's just the great, greatest acronym uh, and such important work. So, um, and then also to April, who introduced me to you, who I met through an All Souls uh, gathering, another Vermont connection. So I guess um, where I start a little bit is just what what pushed me over into with a 30-year career in environmentalism, what it, what, it, what the last few years have, have done. And They've pushed me into a place I think Robin Wall Kimmer could take a lot of credit for. And I think there's a lot of people that would give her a lot of credit for changing their lives. Almost everyone I know that's read it has said that. And um, and I guess that flourishing, all flourishing is mutual is where that quote comes. That's one of hers from her book right in the beginning of writing Sweetgrass. And that we're, we're in a place of deep change. We're in a place of threshold walking. And um, there are those of us that are kind of have been sort of waiting, sitting back, um, as I said, and I'll probably say it again, is, you know, in my work out as a practitioner in the areas that I study, where I practice, 
uh, there's just that place where I was, where it was sort of feeling like I was, you know, um, Sisyphus and Cassandra all at once. So no one believed me and I was out there holding a rock up the hill. So I went through my own sort of personal transformation in this work and um, and started with, you know, background in communications. And then that morphed into a place of noticing what it was to be a pattern hunter. I think Brene Brown starting to use this pattern hunter term, which is kind of fun to hear. And what it is to, um, you know, reconnect to the source and the spiritual and recognize the dualism that I was operating in, the water we've all been swimming in in so many ways, and kind of calling that out for what it is. You know, I grew up outdoors. I grew up in, you know, I'm a white woman of privilege. I had access to the forest. I had access to rivers and streams and oceans. And that was always just sort of who I was. And as life went on, um, it was interesting to kind of sit back and... I don't know. Look, how do you, how do you work with that? How do you work with you? You want to just be all together with everything. There's, I didn't want to pick one area to study, which is why I ended up with two degrees in communications. It's like, what's that? No, you know, even for me to try to explain what I do, there's no elevator speech here. It's sort of this like 10, 10 line paragraphs, three paragraphs and 10 stories and all that. But I want to start too, is just a quote that I love from Howard Thurman, who is a, an African-American theologian, many may know, and this is not an uncommon quote at all, but it's also been guiding my work. And I think it, it explains a little bit of uh, what, where I think we are at, you know, culturally as a society, what the new perennials work is doing on sort of the individual level and then on the collective level. And I think the individual stories are making up the collective and they're supporting that. Um, But he basically says, said, don't ask what the world needs, ask what comes alive and go do that. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. My daughter had that um, when she was in high school, had that literally uh, every word in a different drawing art thing up on her. I'm not even sure where she got it, but literally up in her room. It's what she slept under every night through high school. And um, and so there's that sense of sort of being in service. What is that? But I do think we are in a place where we are, it's an uphill battle for humans to actually hear their own voices, separate themselves for what Danelle Meadows calls the information sphere, and then find the connections and all those places. So with the, um, the being in and out of education and not of higher ed, um, I have, uh, as you had said, out in the field, community engagement, I've had this beautiful and strange existence of living in this sort of space between higher ed and the practical work of the nonprofits and the um, government sectors that I've done a lot of consulting and working within deeply within and sort of been, you know, up to my up to my ears in community involvement and engagement and projects and trying to be that sort of translator between what's going on in that sort of civil government area of how we make our rules, make our, create our, our environments, and then how we then connect up to that. And so um, that, that no man's land is kind of funny in the practical world. When I was in the nonprofit world, I was almost too theoretical, too heady. And when I'm in the education world, it's professor of the practice, community engagement work in higher ed. I'm like, I've got, so I'm living in both places. So for me, the beauty is, and again, this is the weaver piece. This is the following those threads. It's, It's been about bringing it together. It's been about trying to make the invisible visible. And I think some of that is, um, this will probably come up a little bit as we talk, the literacy pieces of it all. So what is it to be literate about the media environment, the Danella Meadows information sphere? What is it to be conscious, right? What is it to be aware of our relationship? What is it to see that the tree is in fact our kin and to move back into those places? And what do we need to see that again? 
So it's about bringing the ancient stories. It's about honoring those that have looked at the um, places we've gone as far as, you know, culturally and looking at nature to our lessons. And, you know, how do we work that out with the new perennial project that comes out of um, the work of Wes Jackson, the Land Institute in Kansas, where he had a vision and a beautiful work. He's in his 80s now, Wes Jackson, and basically went after I think you and I talked about this biomimic, not biomimicry, but imitating nature. So what is it to recreate the natural process on the prairie and look at our ag practices that are destroying our soils? You know, we've depleted 70% at least of our soils today. And 40 plus years ago, Wes said, wait, this isn't working. So he was all about education and he was all about how do we then use his genetist background to create grains that have that are not annual, that are not going to just can be used and not disturbing the natural process of the soil and, and sort of that growth. And how do we move to a perennial, perennial grains that have five and six years roots that are, you know, 18 feet long that are going in that can sustain themselves and, and then monoculture. And those, those are themes that are pretty important right now as we move away and aware of our colonial background and how we have tried to sort of homogenize and monoculture the world. Well, it's the same in the kingdom of the humans, the plants, our, our plant relatives, we have tried to command and control them. So we have divided them up and tried to feed ourselves at mass scale. So he has been working with people at the Land Institute all these years to create this grain that, that is going to have some impact on carbon sequestration, but then also practice changes. But those practice changes with a 10,000 year history of surplus agriculture, that's really hard to do. So you can't do that alone without education. So that's where the education piece came out. That's where my my boss, Bill Vitek, brought this project, this experiment to Middlebury College. And I got to roll up my sleeves and, and dive in. Wow. Well, this is something that's been coming up. Um, you know, not that we're going to talk about the big C word, but... Um, <laughs> it seems to come into every single conversation, but the kind of the, the exactly what you just said, like the, the connection between what's happening to us with viruses and all kinds of stuff like that and the environment, especially the soil. Yeah. And so how we can, there's kind of like a direct link and when you kind of follow that thread, like you do, you follow lots of the threads. And, and so what that means for us, for, for our health as, as humans and the health on the planet. And so, so I'm so curious about this, you know, my husband and I were talking about this this morning. It's like, we kind of know what needs to happen, but it feels massive because it's been with us for so long how do we make this big change like now (laughs) and so I think you're working with this and anyway I can't wait to hear more about it and um you know this whole idea of you know as you say like we've kind of we kind of stopped listening to nature a while ago and so I, I would like to hear your perspective on that and how we what do we do I mean Many of the people on our call, I think they try to engage with listening to nature and listening, but how do we, how do we make it like really practical and and like bring it in on that practical level? And, you know, you talk also about the commodification of our attention and I'm kind of like, oh, (laughs) that's really, so anyway, I'd love to hear you talk more about that. Yeah, sure. Um, First, I'm going to, I'm going to bring in the C word, um, 
because just a little, I won't linger there because just and to honor the the loss, the grief, the COVID fatigue we were talking about, it's, it's real, it's tough, it's not easy for anyone. And so here we are, but there are so many people poised to, to, to work this era shift because we're in an, we're in an epoch shift. There's no question about it. We are in this liminal space and it is time to push ourselves further into this change. And I hope there is no back to normal. I hope it's a new normal when, as we emerge and um, out of this time, but I'll just say two, a couple of things about nature. And uh, one of the things that has come up for me too, is this conversation. We, we talk about this bill, Mark Lappin's my other sort of partner in crime with the new perennials project is this idea of um, uh, working with the interbeing, the knowing of, of other plants and beings, right? So connecting up, but then also looking at where nature kind of has this ability to respond. Uh, and it's, we talk about the difference between annual and perennial and we, and then how about weeds and plants? How about invasives and non-invasives, right? And I know with so many people that, that are part of the Nature Evolutionaries Network, the, you've got herbalists and the, you're, you're all so real in the sort of ecological side of it in an area that I have no expertise in. So you can contradict what I'm going to say, but I've, I have heard this from multiple places uh, and a few places from some of my indigenous friends. And it's that like, for example, we have Lyme disease in the Northeast and we have Japanese knotweed, which is an herb, which is considered an invasive in the Northeast. By some in the herbal community, it's one of the treatments for Lyme disease. So in that, yeah, so there, so, okay, I'm not going to offend anyone. I don't think if you're nodding, that's great. Um, And then we have the, um, and I was on a a call listening and I, this is not someone I claim to have a friend, but I've been learning from her as a teacher is Pat McCabe. And she was saying she's in, it was in Albuquerque. That's where she's been staying during quarantine. And she's in a cement world. She doesn't care for it, but she's walking along the sidewalk and they're growing in the sidewalk in the cracks is mullion. And mullion is something to treat lung conditions. So think of the co-emergence of that. Think of the co-creation. So nature's going to do this whether we want it to or not, whether whether humans are are being present or not present. And I think then I'm going to pivot that to talk about the commodification of our attention. We have been trained away from nature from the minute we're born in our Western culture, Western civilization. Um, that has, I, I would say, it does have its roots 10,000 years ago when we created that civilization off of a surplus economy. And its roots are even greater when you look at then 2000 plus years ago and you look at the Abrahamic religions and how that separated us from nature and how we became, became dominion over instead of part of. And then let's fast forward to our information economy or information sphere, as Danella Meadows calls us. Um, and, and then also what's considered the extraction era. Thomas Berry calls it the extraction era. I'm sure many other people are as well. We are extractive. We are pulling from. We are not replacing. We're doing that with our fossil fuels. We're doing that with all of our natural resources. We are just depleting it for our own, like a vacuum, high intense vacuum. We are doing that. Well, that what's also happening simultaneously, which is what I think is um, what I mean, like communications theory would be called narcotizing dysfunction. And my friends have all heard that term. My colleagues have heard that term. They're like, what? Where does this come from? Well, narcotizing dysfunction, the more media we're getting, the more we're narcotized. We're just numbed. We can't respond. And I don't know if anyone here on the call or Pam or you have seen this, the social dilemma on Netflix, which is talking about this, the this social media. Well, they kind of coined that, um, what I call the attention economy. They, they, what did they call it? I've written down the, um, 
but it's the commodification of our attention. So they basically are extracting our attention. Now, the media has always done that. The media has done that from the beginning, from when it came to be, from the radio to the beginning of our creating the airwaves and our commodification of making those public sector. But you had to have a permit to have a radio station. And then you were bound by some guidelines on what to put on your radio station. And all of a sudden, there's this information bubble out there. So we're not just getting our socialization. We're not just creating our dominant worldview just from our families, our churches, our communities, our neighbors, our our places of work, our places of worship, as I said. But we're also, there's this whole other entity that's come in in the last few hundred years that has taken what was once a way of communicating without words, without written word, where we were using symbols and we were using oral traditions, oral cultures. And all of a sudden we've added visuals and words and noise and it's all seeking our attention. So it's distracting us away from, and, it, and it's creating a whole world that's teaching us something that's moving us fully away. That's why I said in my newsletter article, logos versus leaves. The first class I taught, uh, not only did I, in at Middlebury was in 2004, not only did I hand everybody a copy of the Lorax, which Dr. Seuss, we've had a little, little issue. I do think he would want his bad books removed. I have faith in him to have evolved with us. Um, evolve be evolving with us um, but that book I passed out and then I also gave them a slideshow and tested them okay here's here's the Pepsi logo here's a here's a maple leaf which leaves do you know which logos do you know and and pretty much these are mostly environmental studies kids that get in my class but all kids end up in my classes um, all majors it, it, it people knew more logos than they did leaves and I, I'm guilty of that I couldn't necessarily tell you what's a beach leave, what's an aspen leave. And, you know, that, that I'm definitely guilty. I'm not an ecologist. I wish I was a botanist and ecologist. I'm not there. I've not studied it. Um, and so my appreciation comes from it in a whole other way. But it's certainly um, a very distinguishing moment to sit there and realize we don't know our trees. We don't know them, but we know every corporate logo. We could, you know, as a kid, I could do the Burger King Whopper song and do it backwards. I mean, it's it's kind of scary how much that has has formed that of us. So there's people like, you know, Bio Komalafe, Joanna Macy, Pat McCabe, and others who are opening our eyes for the new stories. Mm, yeah. So so what I'm hearing you say is like it's kind of imperative, right? us to really, really know, know our landscape, know our local ecology, know nature right outside our door. And, you know, I mean, because nature really is our kin. I mean, you know, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for nature. We are nature. um, We are. Yeah, we are. Um, Except there's this giant, you know, huge amnesia that has set in Mm -hmm. and we've forgotten a lot because of this, what you're calling of our attention our attention has been taken away from that so how do we bring it back you know how do we come back into that um you know i know that you have developed some practices of your own both mindful practices and and others of to like come back into this place of um of of waking up to nature or or and anyway i'm not going to put words in your mouth you you tell me what what yeah. you think how 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 do we proceed here 
Yeah, it's um, I, I guess we, as you're talking, the words coming to me of reattunement. It's an attuning. It's a re. It's an unlearning. It's it's a it's a peeling away the onion of what has come in in um, the Native Americans call it the original instructions that we're actually we're, we're born knowing that the original instructions are there. Uh, the same in the Chinese philosophy and theory that I study. Uh, we are also born knowing, and we come in here. We have the sky, the earth. The one comes two. The two comes three. From three comes all things. Well, in my studies, it's the 10,000 things. And those 10,000 things are here to distract us from the one and the two um, and even the three. And so the connection would be to come back to that and, and move away from that sort of conditioning and move back to that that sense of the original design, the original instructions. How we do that's a whole other story. I, that's a question I've spent 30 plus years trying to figure out from the beginning of watching my you know, baby sister in the early eighties dancing to MTV videos and going, what? That's why I went into communications. I was like, this is having this enormous social impact, the power of this, this media. Um, and thinking about, you know, behavior, how do we shape ourselves? I did a lot of study, you know, minor in sociology, like thinking about how do we organize ourselves? How do we shape our individualism? And how do we, how do we know what that is? How do we uh, move away from this rugged, you know, where I'll shorten it up to the past uh, 45 years, maybe since when Reagan took over and this rugged individualism started, we had this pendulum swing right back to a place we are today, which is out over on this edge of such deep individualism that we are about to take our civilization down because we have no idea how to connect back to the whole. So how we do that. I don't have the right answers necessarily. I have ideas. I have experiments. The new perennial project is an experiment of looking at, five spheres and saying, okay, what goes on here that could help us inform how we're going to change our practices. So education, food, ag, um, healing arts, creative arts, uh, sacred practices, how within each of those are they stepping in and we're looking at their work, both from the individual on the individual scale and on the broader scale, community scale. How do we work with that? How do we think about um, using ancient texts to help us? There is one of the reasons I got into this layer of my teaching uh, was the Robin Wall Kimmerer story she shared at the end of her book, The Seventh Prophecy, Seventh Fire, uh, which Judy Dow, an Abeniki educator who's a dear friend, also has been calling the another metaphor for that is the narrows. That here we are at this point, at this in this liminal space, and. And we actually, humans, people, and in the indigenous culture, they were saying, white people, you got us to this place. So now what? We're at this fork in the road. And the best way forward is to bring the ancient stories with us, bring the traditional ecological knowledge, bring the wisdom of our ancestors, know our ancestors, think back to what they were doing, what they learned, why did they do what they did? And then that education process is a part of bringing it forward. And I don't, then I'll, I'll go into that sort of individual and the practices part, which is the microcosm, macrocosm, which is that sick body, sick earth, sick, sick soil, dirty, bad soil, bad food. You know, it's, it, you can't separate it at all those scales. It's so completely intertwined. And, and I, then on a personal scale, that is my, my journey has been that I feel like I have had food sensitivities that I feel like a canary in the coal mine don't have hydrogenated fats. They made me so sick 10 years later. Oh, they're horrible for everybody. So that's just, and that's just one little thing, but it's sort of been my pattern. So I've, as I tuned in and listened to how my body was receiving the food I ate, the clothes I wore, the, you know, the chemicals I used, I don't use anything with sodium lauryl sulfate. 
I don't use anything with parabens in them. I stopped doing that 10 years ago. They're still in over the, you know, pharmaceutical, get an ointment, hydrogen peroxide at the, you know, Walgreens and you've got parabens in them. They're, they're known to be endocrine disruptors that science doesn't even have an argument about that, but we're still seeing them on the shelf. So that ties into precautionary principle, which is something I've also brought into the classroom a lot, but I'm not going to get, that's going to take me down another fork. Um, but the sick body, sick earth, sick mind, sick, that the mental health issues we're facing today, all of it, it's all connected. And my belief in the contemplative practices, and I bring it into the classroom at this point. And I learned, again, I learned that from my own experience, but then also living in, leaning into community and learning I wasn't alone. You know, there was a, there was a time where I felt very alone in the changes I made to my diet and the changes I was doing. And then it just opened up this whole world for me when I started moving down the Chinese medicine route and the practice of Tai Chi. It just completely started to A, connect me. And then through my teachers, I was reading The Great Learning. I was reading Lao Tzu. Lao Tzu. I was reading all of these texts and thinking, wow, there's, there's, that ancient, there's that ancient wisdom. We just have to tap into it. And by... Um, and there's a line and I'm not going to get it right in the great learning that basically is, is to set the intention. You have to know your heart and to know your heart. You can then set your into your heart, the knowledge, and then you look for the patterns in things. And when you take that piece and you're looking at the patterns and you've got the heart and you've got intentions, then you have what it takes to bring a family into the world. Then you have what it takes to build community and then so forth to, to community to, I, I break it down into much more smaller, uh, layers, uh, in the sense of nested interdependence. Then you bring in the origin stories of Thomas Berry and the journey of the universe and you go back cosmologically and you say, it's a new story. It's a new time and the heart and the cosmos are the same. We, you know, there's that we are stardust and that, that it's actually true. The science is now proving we are stardust. We have all the same ingredients as what's out there. So I don't, uh, I border into that place of people going, oh, there's Nadine again, a little woo woo for me. I'm kind of done with being called woo woo. It's like, there's enough science and data to back it. Why are we yeah, still talking? I, I, my I, question, why are we still talking about it? I'm with you there, Nadine. I, I kind of have carried that, um, that stigma my whole life, you know, when, um, you know, I started talking about plant spirits. Oh my God, the big, and there's the big S word, you know, we got the C word and then we got the S word and people would look at me and their eyeballs would roll back in their head and be like, Oh, Oh, she's just airy fairy. That's what I got dubbed airy fairy. And I was like, wow. And I, I came to a point where I was like, you know what? everybody needs to get over themselves and stop doing that. <laughs> Just, you know, so, so I, I'm, so this, why I'm be curious what you feel about this and think about this, but I think, you know, kind of our, our co collective narrative needs to start to shift here. And so I come across, a, I came across this one, like in this past week, which was from the WHO and the worldwide world wildlife foundation. And then the UN uh, convention on, biological diversity. And this is a quote from the, these kind of upper echelon folks. Our destructive behavior toward nature is endangering our own health. And I was like, oh, hallelujah. Finally, you're saying that, you know? So I think that if this kind of messaging, you yeah. know, can get out there in the, in the powers that be narrative, it would, I, I think it would be really important to, to be, for people to be saying this, you know, that, yeah. that, that have the power. 
that have the power exactly. And it's working with the power. Yeah, yeah. no, that, that, that's, um, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. That's uh, yeah. Wow. There goes my Cassandra thing is starting to peel away. Wow. <laughs> you know, the curse, right. The curse. That's really good. I'm like, I didn't catch that this week. It's making me pause. I love it. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah, that's, um, that's really good to wrap my head around so that. That's kind of, that's kind of what you're talking about yeah. with the unlearning. Yeah. It's like this statement is a way for kind of in in the masses anyway to say oh oh actually uh it's not you know it's not so much about a virus it's about that um what we're doing to nature and you know i mean it is a virus but you know there's a reason why you know so i just i i i got so excited when i saw this (laughs) oh good yeah no that's incredible that's really that's really Yeah, there's a Wisconsin, I think he's Republican um, uh, in in government who this week came out or last week came out and um, wants to put a bill before Congress to say the importance of vitamin D. And I was like, "Uh, yeah, how about vitamin D, C and zinc would be good. Right, right. (laughs) It's just kind of like. It's like you get the, the little the little peeling is beginning to happen. It's starting the little peeling yeah. away, and so I'm like, I'm just not sure if it's. So, yeah, no, anyway. I, I think we had a little technical. Um, yeah, that is. So um, tell me, tell me more about. Like, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I was going to add to that. Just give you some examples, not not examples as much, but sort of that that what it's a um, top down, bottom up, bottom up, top down. Like I love that that's coming from the top. And then I think about all the work we're doing on the ground. And I think somewhere again, that space between there's going to be this, I don't think there's going to be a choice. You know, I think Paul Hawkins said it when he did his uh, book where he looked at all the different positive things going on, what he's doing with project drawdown. There's so much going on that I think we are in that place and to have it come from there. That's not, that's a great thing. That's a really, really good thing. Um, and it, when I think back, think about what the work we're doing in the Champlain Valley with the new perennials project. So we are connecting up each of those five spheres has now been building a set of partners for that we have with us in the classroom. And then they're also with us the rest of the year, um, not just in our fall classroom with our students. And we are we're building it and growing. And there are more and more organizations and individuals who are practice practitioners out there that are so happy to be connected up to sort of find their people. And so I, I I think there's so much going on right now and people just have to know that, that, that other people are there too. And that the work they're doing does have that connection, that it does, it is affirming when the book about the, you know, when the trees, you read the, the stories in New York times profiling Suzanne, whose last name I'm going to blank on. Samard. Samard. Um, Samard. Thank you. Um, it's like so much I keep in my head and um you know, that, that the trees are talking to them, that, that movie, fantastic fungi. We, I was able to showcase that with my spring course, um, the approaching sustainability class because a student was able to get us an early copy. And so we watched it and it just, it knocked the socks off all my students and it was the, and, and mine as well. And all of a sudden it was like, ah, mycelia, of course. And then that, that layering up of what that means. And then the power of that and the Paul Stamets of the world and people that are the people that work with you, that you work with that are connected in the, in, in the dirt, growing the herbs, seeing the results of that, that's that work 
it's just getting people connected to each other. And I think that's part of it. And you do that through practices. You do that through life's work that people paths, they move down. And I do think there's that sense of, I use this a lot with my students and, and other colleagues have heard me say this, this Idris net, you know, the Buddhist term of that, that we're turning on one little light at a time that the rabbinical story of the start, throwing the starfish back in the ocean. It's just one starfish. We're going to, that's all that it takes at this point. And to understand the collective power of that um, by seeing that we actually do matter that, you know, that we, the individual difference makes, you know, makes, makes all the world difference. Cause once you work on the self, it can't help but radiate out. And that's sort of also that sort of connectivity that we don't have. I mean, look at the emergence of zoom as we are in this crazy virus world, zoom was just becoming a thing, right? Like we were, we were going to be using it. So we'd save carbon to bring our all, we have an all sphere group of our partners with new perennials and we were going to use it every month to have this meeting. So we all could sort of be in our places uh, and only, you know, drive or go to see each other, save time, save resources. Um, we were going to, and then next thing you know, we're having these meetings monthly because we have to. Um, but again, that's, and, and I know a few of my colleagues will laugh at this because they hear me say this regularly. It's this, I've nicknamed it cyber mycelia. You know, it's sort of become this way. We invented it. We we brought it to be. And here it is just like the mullion in the Japanese knotwood, which nature brought. But we actually, as humans, we created this technology. And here it is, and it's helping us. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, I think that's, that's a piece of it is recognizing where our tools are, where our big thinkers are, what the, the influence that they have, making sure that we don't have the corrupted interests still involved um, with with some of the nonprofit or big environmentals. So, you know, that I don't know if anyone's read the Schellenberger Nordhaus piece, Deaths of the Environmentalism, from back uh, 15 years when I was working with a senior practicum at Middlebury. Um, Schellenberger Nordhaus basically looked at how the kind of resources and the game that you know, environmental organizations were doing. And they said, you are, you're actually playing the same game. And as Bio Komalafi would say, you don't think outside the box, you just stand up, get out and create a new box. And that's where we're at. It's about the new. It's about reinventing, but using the old. It's marrying those two. It's learning to fly between and translate between the new imagination that's required. Mm, yeah. So um, how I, I'm curious with this perennial project, like um, in in Vermont, like this is different than out out kind of in the Midwest. It's like, what are you actually agriculturally doing in the perennial project here in Vermont? Yeah, so um, so we are so just to just to give a brief background for folks. So the Land Institute, uh, we share a, a grant for this work, new perennials work, and half of it is, lives with the Land Institute, and it is with in an ecosphere studies project, which has been around for more years than a little few more years than we have, um, but is doing some work that's right there in with the science, in where it's happening, and doing a, a slightly different kind of of work. And then there's the work in Vermont. And what we've done is we are just beginning to get involved on sort of the agricultural side or on, the, on the, in that, that side of it. And we have um, the Middlebury College has the Knoll, which is its organic garden, which is this breathtaking um, spot up on a hill to the uh, south of campus, I think, southeast. And um, it is we have Silphium growing there, which is the perennial sunflower. 
Um, we, yeah, not a lot, but we have some out there. So we are able to go see it with our students. Uh, it's coming back happily. It's, we've got two pretty large patches of it. Uh, and then we also have Kernza growing as well. So that's, again, it's sort of on a sort of demonstration level. It's not in any sort of big way. And then what's coming up that's just getting started now is working with an agroforestry, um, expert nonprofit called Interlace Agro forestry interlace commons and we are going to start focusing in on the agroforestry piece and there's a patch of middlebury college lands where we're going to be looking at that with this person with mark lappin who's our ecologist students will be working on that and they will be um, studying sort of what is it to bring perennial grains into that um, and what does that mean so there is that there are some places um, in vermont that are growing kernza a couple of Michiko farm um, up in shelburne is growing some kernza there are small patches of it but not big patches of it could, it's kernza could you kernza ah thank you say what that is i, I will I, I don't know thank you yeah so um and if you want to learn more you can go to sort of kernza.org because this is this is basically the wheat grain that uh the land institute has been working on for a number of years to get out to market and it will be something that over time with a yield that they're hoping will be up to sort of 50% scale will start to transmute, transform our access to that grain, to, to making that grain actually have some market viability. So that, again, it's um, it's about, I think, their proof of product testing. There's been some experiments. There are people using it, uh, Patagonia out west, and um, the uh, a brewer, I can't remember who the brewer is, but they are making uh, long root ale actually. So there's some beer made with Kernza. Uh, there is, we had some Kernza flour here. So my colleagues and I were experimenting with it and um, yeah, good. And there's Kernza.org where you can learn more about it. So that will head out into bigger market. General Mills through Cascadian Farms did a large experiment with it two years ago, kind of piloting, can they be using it for their cereals? Um, and they had a, uh, what Wes Jackson dubbed nature as measure moment where they were putting in I forget the number of acres, but a lot of acres. And it was a terrible nature just unleashed. It was a terrible year. And so they didn't yield what they thought they would yield to put out on the shelves a pilot of Kernza grained cereals. So they had to make it a much scale it back and make it more of a pilot thing. Look what we did. It was successful. Um, and it was a, uh, but it what didn't have this, the reach it wanted. So it needs to have more, you know, the opportunity to just sort of keep going. So that's Kernza. And there's also, um, there's a lentil that's going to be perennial. There is um, a rice. There are over 40, I think we're up to 50 or 60 research sites around the world that are also um, put doing these, you know, doing the research on these grains. Where can it grow best? What conditions? What's working? So it's it's pretty, it, it, it's there. It's taking, you know, I think Wes Jackson says, if you haven't, uh, if something's going to be done in your lifetime, you haven't thought big enough. So it's certainly it's getting out there. Yeah. And so part of the idea behind perennial as opposed to annual is that it's, you know, you, you're not going to be messing with the soil every single year of, you know, um, destroying the, you know, all the wonderful, you know, tilth of the soil and all of that, which um, so, so that's awesome. So it just comes back every year. It's perennial. 
it yeah. comes back. I believe it's it's got a, a five or six year cycle. So it's not okay. for perpetuity, um, but yeah. the idea is it, it can be planted with companions. It can be with polyculture. So you're also then feeding back into the soil because you're not dominating by any one sort of chemical relationship with the soil. So your your polyculture is part of it too. So yeah, so it has it, and it's they they've the jury's fully out on its level of ability for carbon sequestration, but it's certainly bigger than annual agriculture. We think of the millions of acres that are there for soybean, corn. Uh, and wheat, uh, it, it, it will make an enormous difference right there. And has there been any studies with the um, Kernza about like uh, gluten content? You know, like, would it, I mean, I'm just curious of like. Oh, I did ask that question because I'm <laughs> gluten free. So, yeah, so I actually asked that question and um, I will say that I'm guilty of not having used the flour that was given to me to experiment on myself. Um, and I know it has some gluten content, so it's not going to be necessarily a gluten that is going to be acceptable for, say, for someone with celiac. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not going to be a better. And I, I've read enough studies in my own journey to know that oftentimes it's a um it's not just about the protein itself, but it often has to do with the way we have changed it and hybridized it over time. So Kernza may get it back to a better, to more digestible. I've heard from many people who have done more traveling than I have in the last decade or so that in Europe, the, the bread you can eat, someone that's gluten-free can eat breads in Europe and not have any problem. So there's a, something going on here with our grain and how we've industrialized it um, that has probably been part of the, the co-opting of its uh, ability for some to, you know, digest it, metabolize it. Yeah. So I'm hoping Kearns is better, but I haven't experimented myself. And I know they are looking at it because they're looking at every aspect of it. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. I'm, I, anything that can uh, contribute to the health of the soil, I'm all for it. So <laughs> that's great. So, um, so this new story you've been talking about, um, can you say, can, can you give, tell us your version of the new story? My version of the new story. Um, <laughs> yeah, my version of the new story. That's great. That's um, it's uh, I think as in, as in what I put together for that article, even that quote that you all pulled out that was sent around this morning, that was so beautiful. Um, or not, I can't say it's beautiful. I wrote it as that, that I was appreciating that you pulled it out. And one of my students actually had, that was my TA last year who graduated former student pulled out that quote and sent it to me when she read my article, but it's that sense. Um, it's I'm, I'm pulling from so many different thinkers right now and bringing that to the students in, in sort of at a deep inquiry level for terms of a new story. So I, and then also doing my own, I, I have a, an advising business called Wood Dragon Advising, and I work with individuals to help them re, kind of reclaim their own stories on, on sort of that individual level. What is it to move through a life's transition? What is it to, um, what is it to develop your own contemplative practice? What does that mean? I think the root of a new story is the ability for humans to develop a contemplative practice. That's something, whether it's just going and sitting outside and meditating or just sitting by the tree for a half hour every day at the base of a tree outdoors, doesn't matter if you're a perfect Zen Buddhist master or, you know, um, a, uh, 
um, a monk up in, you know, a hermit and monk up in the hills in China as far as the practice goes. But just pausing that the pause button is to me the most important thing. And so the story for me begins there. It begins on the individual level. It begins with self-cultivation. It begins with stepping back. It begins with sitting still. Um, and I think I say that in that quote, I I'm just was looking, it's like, if we quiet and still ourselves in this crisis, one of the things Bio Komalafi does say is, you know, times are urgent, we must slow down. So I think the story starts there. And then I think also that means we have to overcome the difference between self-care and selfish, because those that want to hold on to the old story and claim, hold on to the resources and are clinging so fiercely, we see it, we see it now, they're clinging so fiercely, we're not they don't want us to have a new story. They want to call it selfish if we are doing self-care. And there's a big difference between this individualism and what it is to have self-care and, and what that means. And I think that the climate work, the social justice work, it's not going to happen without that. It's not going to happen without um, honoring the voices and bringing in the old voices. So it's to me, it's it's the cosmology of a Thomas Berry and the journey of the universe and what Brian Swim is bringing forward and Mary Evelyn Tucker with that work. So I, to me, it's a mosaic. It's a weaving of all those stories to bring us to a place of openness and understanding. But it starts with making space. It starts with mm. the softening of the human being, because I think until we soften, until we learn to sit back in our own energy, and, and I say this from personal experience, I say this from working with my teachers as a student, I say that as a teacher, I say that as an advisor who works with clients, Step stepping back and in and down, down into that root chakra, they say in Ayurvedic medicine or lower Dantian in Chinese medicine, it's, it's sitting back into that. Or in, you know, I work with a beautiful and dear friend who's an intuitive healer. And it's, it's, it's understanding the source, it's understanding energy. So to me, if, if that connection, and that light, again, back to Idris net, if that connection starts to happen on the individual level, it can't help but hit the be 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 resonating at the macro level. I, I don't think you can separate it. So that to me is, I guess, what would be be the story. And then we have to learn to embrace joy. We have to learn to cry. We have so much grieving to do right now, so much collectively uh, from what's happened to our black and brown sisters, what's happened to our queer communities. We have so much to hold and to create space for. But we start with making space inside our own hearts. That's great. Thank you for that. That's, um, yeah. And I love how you say, I mean, I think when people think about like meditation or something like that, they have to go, you know, sit in like a yoga pos posture for, you know, an hour and, and all that. And, but, but what you write is like, Hey, go outside and sit next to that tree and just be quiet. And like, what, what, how are you being in, informed from the tree? You know, like, not that it's on a, heady level but it just goes into no, that but heart body. Yeah. yeah yeah and in chinese yeah. medicine the word for heart and mind and that's the other thing i don't i meant to i wanted to chat just i'll briefly mention it this is called jin and that is it's the same word for heart oh, sorry heart and mind right so it's the same word so we have separated the heart and the mind the human species has the western civilization uh the capitalist structures all of it has completely they've kept us separate because if we were listening to our heart, we would know we didn't need that new couch because we had a perfectly nice, you know, we didn't need that junky thing from the dollar store. I, you know, I don't know. And not that it's junky. Some of the, some of those, you know, scale wise, finance wise, it's not junk to people, but it's, it's bringing those two together. 
um, in that way that makes all the difference, reconnecting it. Good. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much. You know, um, Nadine, if you don't mind, we may have some questions here from folks. Um, Jen, I'm going to turn that piece over to you. Do we do we have any questions that, that Nadine can address? Um, so if you have a question, you can put it in chat, or if you go to reactions, you can raise your hand and I'm calling you. So no, there aren't any um, just yet. Um but I, I see that there are some things there's in the chat. Yes. So there's some great resources in there about the okay. Kernza and um, uh, landinstitute.org has one about perennial crops. So it's some good resources in there. Um, yeah. Not so far. Okay. Any questions? This is your chance. Nadine is a treasure trove of wisdom and, uh, and knowledge and information. So this is a good opportunity to kind of pick her brain just a little bit. Okay. Uh, Rebecca is got her hand up, Jen. Well, I have Lou here. Actually, I'm going to ask, I have, he's first online. Um, okay. Lou, can you talk? You might have to unmute yourself now. Good, good. You can hear me. Great. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Nadine. It was really, really informative. But what can we, as I'm listening to this, and it really spoke to me in many, many ways uh, in this last year with C, I've been working from home, and I have spent probably an hour plus a day uh, in a forest nearby, a large park, just getting reacquainted with, with nature and looking at trees. And I, I find a lot of people doing that. Maybe that was a plus uh, in this whole experience, terrible experience we've all been through. But what can we as individuals do on, you know, on this individual basis to promote things? Mm, good question. Thank you, Lou. Um, I, you know, I think that just being there every day um, and, and being part of the community of people that you see out there every day, even in, in your socially distanced in Vermont, we call it a heifer apart, right? The six feet apart, but you're in community when you're out there, not just with the trees, you're in community with, with your um, fellow humans that are out there doing the exact same thing. Uh, I have the same thing by me. I have a, a walk to a dirt road down along a river that I go to almost every day. I think it's being aware. What, what is, is the area you're going to a park? Is it protected? Um, who has access to it? You know, where what, what you could do as an individual is as is to take a, a stewardship role even in that same space and make sure it's accessible to those um, who might not have access, may not know. Maybe there's someone that's um, infirm in a wheelchair that needs to get out in that park. And once it's socially distanced and we've all had our vaccinations um, for what that's, you know, that that whole journey we're on. Um Maybe it's getting someone out, volunteering with an organization and bringing someone out and introducing them, introducing someone else to it. So I think, you know, as an individual, uh, it's about connection. It's about community. So it's not just being alone in our own little island. It's about what is what it is to, you know, open your heart to to the not just to the trees, to the water. Is it, you know, that, that's what I would recommend. I hope that helps. Thank you, Rebecca. Let's unmute you. Well, you're going to have to unmute yourself, but you should you do it. Not yet. There we go. Thank you. So I'm interested in um, getting involved with college students on our farm. We're in Massachusetts, so I don't know if you 
people would travel that far. But do you have any ideas about how to connect with programs like yours as a place where people could go and do projects and research? Yeah, great question. Uh, where I guess I would start with, you know, where I grew up in Massachusetts, Western Mass. So I guess I'm curious where you are, and then think about: Are you near any kind of a teaching, you know, school? I don't. I I would love to say the Vermont Milligbury students would be connected down there with technology, maybe, but not hands on. Um, but I would yeah. say that, um, you know, depending on what's around you, there I would bet there are are colleges that, that what we're doing is really called experiential learning community connected learning, that engagement piece of it. Um, I would say some some schools that are doing that more than others. So it becomes sort of, you know, is there a professor that's doing the classroom? Is there an ag program at the local community college? Is is your high school, I, our high school here in Middlebury has a career center and they have a sustainable ag program. So it's like, what would be the resources right within your space that you might be able to connect to. So I'd be curious, like, just do you mind sharing where your farm is, what town? And I'll I'll get my brain thinking about it. We're on Martha's Vineyard. So that's uh-huh. a little limiting because it's a, a boat trip from. Yes. Oh, well, I'd be happy but... to come out there and, and hang out with you and bring my students. No problem. <laughs> I just need to find a brand. <laughs> I'll come too. Yeah, right. I'm there. I'm in. Yeah. Um, so, wow, that's beautiful. So, I, yeah, I guess, is there any... You know, I think of the vineyard and its proximity to the community college system of Massachusetts, and maybe there's something going on on that level that has more, you know, cla- tangential classrooms that are out faced in your direction. Um, but uh, I don't know. I, but let's chat. I, I would actually have fun digging in on that a little bit. That that's helpful. And and the other thing that I just want to m- quickly mention is that I've been getting so much benefit out of. Um, hanging out with seeds and in terms of the um, the social justice part, because the way that a plant dies and composts itself and gives up everything that it was and just sends the seeds forward with only what's needed for the future and the way of leaving things behind so elegantly without really apparently a lot of regret that has been really helping me a lot in terms of letting go of traditions and heritage things that are no longer um, working well that's beautiful yeah I, I don't I could I could not profess to be any kind of an expert in that area but I'll just refer back to Robin Wall Kimmer her chapter on the pecan trees where she talks about um, the responsiveness, you're nodding, yeah, the responsiveness of what happens when you have sort of a bounty one year and then everybody's full up and then there isn't enough food for everybody and then sort of what nature does to sort of rebalance it. So there's this trust and equilibrium if it's, uh, I would say, not uh, an interrupted, disturbed process that humans have done to commodify or extract. But if it's moving through, uh, there's there's a trust in there Right. That sounds beautiful. Thank you for sharing. So, Nadine, that's a great segue because there's another question about books, Um, books that you've read recently that would be good resources for this. Oh, boy. Um, I think what I would love to do is I have um, I could send you to my website, actually, because I have a list of kind of teachers that I've been reading quite a bit and books I've been reading. I am um, 
you'll see behind me, I'm a really, I think books is my, my hoarding thing. And so, uh, and I'm usually reading about six books at once. So uh, as in right next to me, I actually just have not read, and I love Thomas Berry and I'm getting deeper into his work, but I'm reading the great work right now. I would highly recommend that. That's where he took, in this was published in 99 and he's got a chapter in the extractive economy. And it's like, oh, of course, that's what I've been saying. And you know, he's been saying, um, I'm reading books. If you think about the interior work that we're doing, the cultivation of self, I'm now reading St. Teresa's Interior Castles, which is incredible. Um, I don't know much about Christianity, but this is beautiful about sort of sovereignty and what that is and what it is to be soul connected. Um, another thing that relates to, um, actually, I'll just give you a tour of my table really quickly. The universe is a green dragon, which is written by Brian Swim. Uh, and he, this is incredible. This precedes journey of the universe. And I actually personally am liking this better. I just read it cover to cover, um, the other day. And then, yeah, here we go. Yeah, no problem. So raising free people, Akila Richards. Uh, I didn't mention her. She is incredible. She is now in this sort of de-schooling, unschooling. She, uh, one thing we're doing with new perennials project is exploring what it is to create a perennial learning center. And that's something that is now guiding our work in the classroom with our students is what does it mean to create a perennial learning center? In reading this, she is decolonizing um, what education means in this de-schooling work uh, and then discovering something called an agile learning center, which is where students are partnering on their self-directed work. And it's completely outside of the, the paradigm. It's a really brilliant read. Uh, another one, another author that I love a lot, and her talks are beautiful too, podcasts, is um, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, Radical Dharma. This is a brilliant, a brilliant book. And then wait, I'll give you three more right here. And then I'm happy to make a list if people want. Um, Daniel Christian Wall, I'm using him in the classroom now quite a bit for my spring class, regenerative, um, yeah, designing regenerative cultures. I think someone had a question in the chat about worldview changes. This would be a great Bible for that. Um, Contemplative Practices in Higher Ed Journal. Uh, this is brilliant. Uh, original Instructions, another one that I've just barely cracked. But this is one that I have been in and out of. And Jeremy Lent is putting out a new book. This one's called The Patterning Instinct. And his, I discovered him a few years ago. And he also, like Thomas Berry and others, he has a deep, deep his, uh, study also of the Chinese philosophy and um, theory that informs his work. So his, this isn't brilliant. And he's got a new book coming out. He and Daniel Christian Wall have an interview together. Uh, that's amazing. That's on Daniel Christian Wall's um, medium.com site. If anyone follows any of that. And then, okay. That's emerging. Well, another one, it would be important. I didn't even mention her is Adrian Marie Brown, emergent strategy. Highly recommend that. She's a new book, pleasure activism. I think I haven't read that. Uh, there's also, if you want to get into some science fiction, when you talk about worldview shifts, Parable of the Sower, I had her quote somewhere in my notes to share with you about change. That book changed my life. She is probably the seminal voice behind Adrian Marie Brown's work, along with Margaret Wheatley, whose uh, sustainable leadership is also a, back, uh, a, a backbone for Adrian Marie Brown's work. So that's just a quick tour. We're at four o'clock. That's just a few. Wow. I didn't We've touch myself by me. Yeah. Yeah. Someone asked wow. me, do you sleep? I was like, I tried. <laughs> so, Oh my goodness, Nadine. Well, thank you so much. Our time is about up here and I can't even thank you enough for being willing to join us. And um, 
and just share with us. You've got you've got so much to share, and I'm I'm just um, so grateful for that. So uh, I just have a couple little things I want to share with you all. That next month, uh, April, our free talent seminar will be called it's will be the way of the rose with uh clark strand and perdita finn that should be a, a fun one and i just just so you know that all of our teleseminars um are you can find them on our website at natureevolutionaries.com and they are um podcast as well so you can you know go out and do your little jog with your your things in and listen to um one of our other podcasts from from the past this has been recorded this one so you can listen to it again because there's so it's so there's so rich and there's so much here that for me i'm gonna have to listen to in order to catch everything that we've uh, that Nadine has shared with us today so 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 you'll get to listen to this again if you want to and send your friends uh, as well so uh the other thing that's coming up in our organization which is very exciting it's our very first one is we're going to do an online course which will begin March 31st it's called connecting creatively with nature a 30-day journey to connect our hearts and the earth so this will be structured. We'll have five live classes, which will um, there'll be a instructor for each one of those classes, and um, there'll be uh, each week after that class there'll be f- daily activities that we will uh, suggest that you engage in. That that won't take a lot of time, but it's a way for just like what Nadine has been talking about here. It's a way for you on every single day a way to connect with nature. That's simple easy, something you can do. And it's not one of those things like, oh my God, I got to go do this now. Oh, it's going to take how long? It's not like that. We're making it simple. We're making it easy. We're making it inspiring, exciting. So it's a way to engage every single day. And so we will be doing that. So that starts on March 31st. So please go to our website to learn more about that and how you can sign up and register for that event. Then uh, I'm going to be doing on March 24th, kind of as a a little, you know, a little way to whet your appetite for that course that'll begin on the 31st. I'm going to be doing a free class, which will be called Coming Home to Nature, Ways to Engage in Vital Relationship with Earth and All Her Beings. <laughs> so, um, so that'll, and that will be free. So please see, um, attend that one. And then, of course, you know, we bring you these free events and these free teleseminars, and it um, it is not free for us. <laughs> so just to say that we have to put out money to, you know, have all kinds of the stuff that, that makes this happen. And so it would be lovely if you all would choose to become members. It's a mere $35 a year, or if you've, you know, got your bucket of gold sitting sitting around somewhere and you just, it's just like, you know, weighting you down and you want to make it to So please, uh, please support um, the work of one because you are supporting the earth when you support the work of one. And so I just want to thank all of you for joining us today and wherever you are on the planet right now, we are in the Northeast and we had our token 65 degree day and that's gone now. And here we are back to winners probably for another month. But anyway, um, it's, it's coming soon that warm weather. And so you get out there, enjoy the outdoors, enjoy your landscape, give a big hug to one of your trees and kiss your plants. And, um, 
and begin to tell that new story. Thank you so much, Nadine. I am oh, so grateful you. Thanks to for have having you me. Here. It's Lovely. been a, a real pleasure. Okay, everybody. Bye for now. Great. Take good care, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Pam. Thanks.